Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. What is the impact of human behavior on a cyber attack? And what do we mean when we talk about human cyber defense capabilities? Nearly everyone in cyber talks about people, process and technology, but often the people side is mentioned only in passing. How many organizations really think through the people side of their cybersecurity response? And how many factor in how we as human beings respond to the pressure of a cyber incident? The answer is almost certainly too few. How then do we prepare for a cyber attack? And how can we help people to make the right decisions under pressure? Our guest this week is Rebecca McCowan, Director of Human Sciences at Immersive Labs. A psychologist who has worked with the militaries, governments and organisations involved in critical national infrastructure, she argues that we're not investing sufficiently in the human side of security response. I think certainly from my perspective and as a psychologist I'm naturally going to be a little bit biased but to me it's of equal importance to the technical side of things because at the end of the day human beings are the people that are pressing the buttons. If you follow any piece of wire you'll find a human being at the end of it whether that's on the attack side or the defence side. So for me it's hugely important to consider why people behave the way they do in particular circumstances. And we talk a lot in security about people, process and technology and saying that people is the most important element of that three-legged stool. But actually, does it receive sufficient attention among security teams and overall in businesses? I think traditionally, possibly not. Um, I think it's certainly become more prevalent um, in recent times. And uh, for me, the observations that I've made over the last couple of years, I think the pandemic has really highlighted the role of people a little bit more because that was what we call a traditional wicked, wicked problem. You know, there is no great solution. We're dealing with things that have high stakes. It's very fast paced. We don't know what to do because it's not a situation we've encountered before. And I think that the whole globe going through that has really sort of refocused on the role of people within any organization. And I think for me in cybersecurity, it's even more important because it's it's a very similar type of environment. It's all very new, it's very fast paced, lots happening. Um, So I think it's made people perhaps realize that there is a bigger role for the human within within cybersecurity. So we'll come back to how that looks in the moment and how that would work. But what's your own background and how did you become involved in this area of research? My background, I worked for a university. Um, I've got a master's degree in applied psychology. And my first few years I spent working within the aviation industry and human factors. So very much what happens in high stakes situations and the impact of human behavior there. And then the past sort of 10, 12 years or so, I worked on a Ministry of Defence contract through the university. So I spent a lot of my time looking at how learning and development happens across the Ministry of Defence and also spent five years embedded on a military base where I was doing research as well as lecturing um, to military audiences. So it's really about the psychology of how people react in a crisis, the types of thinking skills that you need and the things that can get in the way of um, making good decisions. Is that then why you've moved over into the cybersecurity sector? Because we're looking at this as a situation that is a crisis situation? 
It is, yes. And I think that for me, the exciting, challenging thing about it is, is that with military, they've been around for a lot of years. Um, Cybersecurity is, relatively speaking, fairly new. So I think there is a lot of things that can come from military and also from my aviation background that are very, very applicable within cybersecurity. Um, and that's why I joined Immersive Labs. So if we were to look into that in a little bit more detail, what type of behaviours do you see in, let's say, large organisations, your research is focused on large organisations, but what do you see in organisations, in particular those who need to respond to a security incident that may be uh, both positive and negative? I think really, um, for me, the biggest part is understanding how the brain works, because that's what has an impact regardless of whichever organisation you're working in. The brain is a limited capacity information processor. And because of that, it's taking lots of shortcuts all of the time that we don't necessarily know anything about. We've heard about things like unconscious bias. That's a phrase that most people are familiar with. Um, And there is a whole load of unconscious biases and they work to make the brain work quickly. So when we're in a situation, we use our experience and intuition to operate. But that is great in one way because it means that you can react quickly. It's not great in another way because it means that you're making an awful lot of assumptions. You're not necessarily taking in all of the information you need to to look at a new situation. You might just assume that X solution worked last time, therefore it will work again. And then you're not necessarily taking into account all of the different subtleties in the information that's incoming. So that's the basic way that the brain works. Because of that, you then have automatic biases towards going in a certain direction. So you have an automatic bias to take action, for example, especially in a crisis situation, because it's better to do something rather than to do nothing. And that's fine in one respect. It's not fine in another respect because it means that you're rushing towards a decision. And it's about, therefore, learning the skills to balance those biases so you you develop more advanced thinking skills, you can create some distance and start to make more rational decisions in what is generally a very emotional situation. And the phrase the military like to use for this is that people flap. Yeah, they flap. Um, It's that, yes, it's an instinct, an instinctive reaction. Now, the military train that out in a certain way. Um, They're very, very good at that. There's no doubt about it. However, when you're talking about these wicked problems that we have within a cyber crisis, you can't go by the playbook because every single situation is going to be slightly different. And it's about developing the skills to realise when things are different and when they're the same. Um, It's a difficult thing to do. It takes some time. It's not something that you can do just within a traditional classroom training lesson. It's very much about building relationships, understanding how you think, understanding frameworks and ways that you can actually stop yourself doing these unconscious biases. So again, it's triggering actions that might be, they might appear rational at one level, but actually they're not helpful to the the cyber incident. So is what you're suggesting then that actually part of this awareness is to step back and see how the incident is evolving before coming up with the most appropriate, most suitable course of action? Yes, exactly that. But of course, that's difficult because your innate instinct is to rush in and do something. And it's, it's very, very powerful. It's in all of us. Um, And it's created by adrenaline. So fight, flight or freeze is the general reaction. So to actually go against that is incredibly difficult because it is instinctive. 
Um, and what we, we talk about is this thing called cognitive agility. And that is the ability to learn when that instinct is kicking in. In the military, we call it left of bang. So what happened before it all kicked off? Once you get to recognize those cues, then you can recognize that you're going into a situation whereby you might be compelled to act in a certain way. And then it's at that point, through training, you can learn to actually think, right, now, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's happening. I need to stop and we need to take a step back. But I say it's not something that comes naturally to people because you are fighting those innate need to go and solve the problem. And you analysed it's actually quite a large number of incidents. I think it was uh, 6,400 crisis response decisions. So what did you find in terms of patterns emerging from the way people behave? And did that vary also by the type of organisation and the type of attack they were facing? We certainly found that technical and financial services organisations um, were higher up the list than critical national infrastructure ones. But for me, it's not necessarily about the sector per se. It's about what's happening on a psychological level. Um, and with ransomware, for example, what we found was there was a lot of uncertainty and people didn't have confidence in their decisions. And that can be explained by the psychological processes of what ransomware is, is a wicked problem. So, for example, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a zero-sum game. Do you pay the ransom? Don't you? And then you've got different things going on there. So, for example, you're going to have an organization's view on whether you pay a ransom or not. And then you've got the people who are on the ground in the crisis responding, who perhaps have a very different um, perspective on this because they understand at a, a very deep level what the consequences are for the organization and that you, you have a bit of a, a mismatch in thought sometimes. Um, I think the best way for me to probably describe it is it's about how people value certain things like do or don't you pay the ransom. There was one um, circumstance I had in a classroom once where two very people, very similar backgrounds, very similar um, jobs, had a massive disagreement over a picture of facial piercings. This was in a cultural specialist course in the military. And the lesson learned from that was that there was a very emotional reaction. They were close to having an argument, yet these people were very similar. Cultural differences. Is, is what's going on there. Now, if you tr transfer that over to a crisis situation with ransomware to pay, not to pay, it's not a useful time to have that sort of level of difference between two people in a team surfacing. So the idea of doing more training and micro drilling, so constantly building relationships in a slow and calm environment and testing those decisions in a non-crisis situation makes you more prepared for dealing with it in a crisis and more able to overcome those biases. And some of that then is accepting the fact that there will be perhaps unexpected or unpredictable behaviours and yes. that actually that, that's okay. You know, we're expecting people to react because it's a pressurised and adversarial situation. They may not react in the way they would want to act in normal business as usual circumstances. Yes, exactly that. And that's why we do drills. That's why we do drills. Yeah, because it sort of enables you to have those conversations in a calm environment. When the pressure's off, you have time to sit back and listen to somebody else's story to understand their narrative. Um, as a journalist, you know the importance of narrative. Um, and I think that if you can understand why somebody else has the opinion that they do, you can then not necessarily have to agree with it, but at least you can look at the information they're bringing to the decision making process 
and listen to it and take it on board, you're more likely to do that. Whereas if somebody in a crisis situation, everybody's on edge, you're rubbing people, you know, people are rubbing each other up the wrong way, you're not necessarily going to listen to that incoming information that might actually have a, be really important in towards making the decision. Uh, well, indeed. And that's, again, the ability to filter through the information and react according to the facts rather than, yes. you know, a, a prejudged view of what might be the facts. But yes. something you mentioned in the report is, is cadence, and that's quite an interesting thing because, again, going back to where you were working previously, you spend a lot of time running exercises and drills and practices, but actually businesses find that expensive and disruptive and they can't run them as often as perhaps the playbook says they should. Um, does that frequency of exposure or infrequency of exposure directly correlate to people's ability to act or react in a crisis? Absolutely. Um, I think the thing with the sort of traditional tabletop exercises, like you say, they're a big event. They're very expensive. You can't have people out of the business for that amount of time on a regular basis. It's just not possible logistically, financially, resource wise to run those sort of things very, very regularly. And the thing that drew me to immersive labs in the first place really was the recognition that actually you need those skills, but there has to be a way of making it easier for companies to actually do. It's all right for the military, that's their job. That's what they can spend their time doing. Businesses can't. Um, and what I like about immersive labs is the way that you can take a crisis sim or labs and it's little tiny chunks of training that you can do on a far more regular basis that don't take so much time, so not anywhere near as expensive. So you can be building up all of those building blocks by going through these labs on a regular basis. And I think there's also a bit of a mindset change thing, because when you mention the word training, people automatically think about coming out of the business, going on a course, either when whether it be online or off to you know, a hotel somewhere to do something. And it, it's seen as separate to the business. Whereas what you can do is become, make it part of the day job almost. And I think if you have lots of little nibbly labs to do, little crisis sims, which will take you 45 minutes, you can do those far more regularly. Um, so it's not just about building the relationships. It's also about what we call skill fade, because certain skills like decision making and following procedures, if you're not exercising them regularly, then you lose that skill. And to keep those skills at sort of gold standard, you want to be doing it once every eight weeks at the absolute minimum. So again, who's going to run a tabletop exercise once every eight weeks? Nobody. So I think for me, it's about the balance of getting the exercising in, building those skills, the knowledge, skills and judgments that you need, but doing it in a way that works for the business. And are they still as effective then? Yes. Yes, very much so, because you are constantly revisiting, refreshing and building on those skills throughout the year rather than having a one off event, which... You have your report afterwards and everybody has a great time and we all learn a lot from it and value it. And then two months down the line, business as usual steps in. It's in the way again. Whereas if learning and exercising becomes business as usual, you take all of those problems away. You're constantly refreshing and updating skills. There was quite a wide divergence in the research around which sectors did the most exercises or practices, and it was financial services and technology were at the top. But uh, you're saying that critical national infrastructure organisations did the least preparation running a single exercise a year. Now, is that a function of that they're not 
particularly bothered by cybersecurity, they don't care? Or is it actually because it's really hard to do? You know, you can't start shutting down power plants to, to fake a cyber attack on a, you know, even a quarterly basis. It's just, as you say, too costly. It is. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I haven't, yeah, I don't know those sectors intimately well. I can't, I can't speak across sectors or customers for exactly the reasons why different organisations do things in different ways. But generally speaking, from the psychological perspective, merged with the business perspective, it is that thing about having all of that time out. And like you say, a nuclear power plant can't shut down for a couple of days, or you know, you've you've got to build a shadow box if you like to do it. So there's. It's too complicated, it's too expensive, and it's too disruptive. So therefore, there is a solution, a, a different way of doing things which can help you build skills in a better way to maintain those skills and be able to use them more intuitively. So another point that came out of this was that there is uh, a large gap between witnessing an attack or picking up a new type of attack and actually developing a capability to deal with that. And it's saying on average, it takes uh, over four months to develop skills to tackle emerging threats. Uh, what sort of risk does that pose to organisations? Well, I think it's it's risk from a different couple of perspective, really. I think there's some government bodies sort of, I think there's regulatory type um, noticed 48 hours to put a patch in. Well, is that realistic if somebody's going to take four months to train them? You know, so there is a bit of a mismatch there. Um, and again, it's the constant cadence of training that's important there, because if you're constantly renewing that knowledge as part of the day job, then that is going to mean that you are building those the knowledge, skills and judgment that you need constantly, rather than having to think, oh, my goodness, something's happening. Now we've got to rush off and train to do this. I think it was three months average for the new threats, apart from the Log4j, which was two days. Um, but that in itself was possibly due to the publicity that that particular threat received. So again, it's about do we actually very much focus on new threats when they come in or are we always nibbling away at key skills and judgment? And then when a new threat comes in, you're already kind of built up some skills and you've got pattern recognition. You're starting to understand um, the assumptions and biases at play. So therefore, you can be up to speed a lot quicker if you're doing it more regularly. And that seems to be a logical approach, doesn't it, to develop a base of skills which is applicable to a wider range of threats and then can be adjusted or adapted according to the situation rather than teaching people very specific sets of reactions against a particular threat vector, which, which might not be enduring. We don't know. We don't know what the next generation of cyber attacks will look like. And it's those skills, that are, that's what we call cognitive agility. It's something that the military have been working on. Um, and... It's about the way that you go about training it is to that building advanced thinking skills. So you're open to new ideas. You learn how to create that distance that we talked about a little bit earlier and to understand when you're making an assumption and recognize the cues of maybe um, some friction with another team member, that sort of thing. And you start to then recognize the underlying patterns within different things. So again, it's building up that skill set constantly. And as I said, it isn't easy. It's difficult to do. And the most learning probably comes from the reflection afterwards. Military, it's all about the after action review. 
So what ha what happened during the incident, what was supposed to happen, what went well, what didn't go so well. And by getting people to debrief themselves, they tend to take ownership of that. They tend to, you know, it's much better to recognize where you made a mistake yourself than have some grumpy sergeant major shouting at you and telling you off in front of all of your friends. So it's it's really not just about the skill building, it's about the reflecting on it and also the environment that that's done in. There's been a lot of talk recently about psychological safety, another thing that's come out of the pandemic, and it isn't new, it's newly recognised, and that's that it's okay to make mistakes because that's how we learn. If you're not making mistakes, you're not generally learning anything. It's those sort of humility-inducing moments when you realise that something's gone wrong, and it's being feeling safe enough to say, do you know what? I made a mistake and this is what I've learned from it. And if you can do that in a safe environment, then you will actually take those learnings and put them into practice. Um, the aviation industry would call it a just culture and they've been doing it for donkey's years. So I think that that's something else that would be really useful to bring in is to stop looking for people to blame because it's not helpful. And that's all part of how you do the debrief. So again, how do you think that went is often a more powerful response than I think you did this or didn't do that. Yes, exactly that. And that's how the military would do it. They, it's, it's, it's not helpful at all to have somebody else pointing out your mistakes. What they generally tend to do is look at the timeline. So where did we start off? What happened along a timeline? And then as each team that was involved in that particular journey contributes... In that, if they feel comfortable enough to, they will say, well, actually, at that point, we made X decision. Looking back on it, it would have been better to do Y instead. Because there's another thing called hindsight bias. I mean, we're all familiar with this, aren't we? Um, you know, we could have done it differently. And it's okay looking back because you've got calm, you've got all of the facts in hand, and you know what the consequences were. But when the decision was made at that time, you did not have that much information and that much awareness. So therefore, that looking back is where you learn because, like I say, it's, it's in that calm environment. You feel safe. People are happy to turn around and say, well, actually, do you know what? I think I could have done it differently, and that's okay. So it's really, it's very, very powerful as a learning tool. With your professional background, do you think sometimes we have too much information in these situations because the, the industry really wants to ramp up the volume of data coming into emergency response teams, into uh, systems operations and so forth? And, you know, everything's about monitoring and instrumentation. But actually, the human brain can only do so much, especially under pressure. That's right, yeah. Information overload um, or cognitive overload, we'd call it. Um, and I think that there are lots of techniques that you could use if, you, if an organization wanted to think, well, actually, you know, putting information out there in volume is one thing, but communication is a two-way process. So you can put you communicate information, but if that information is not understood and used in the way that you intended it to be, you haven't got communication, you're just talking at people or you're throwing information at people. And by doing sort of cognitive task analysis, you can, you can look at what information is incoming, what information is going to be more pertinent and have that pre-filtered, if you like. So that's where automation comes in, isn't it? So how effective is that then? And also, is there enough input from people in your profession to actually how the automation is designed so that it works with the human 
brain rather than against it. Um, is there or should there be? Should there um, be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my head, obviously, there should be because it's about, again, understanding that limited capacity information process. So this, your brain's getting information in for a number of different channels. So it can only take a certain amount of information within each channel. So if you design to account for that, think about your um, the car and think about what dials are on that uh, unit yeah, behind your steering wheel. Those are all designed to lower cognitive workload when you're driving. And it's the same principle there. So if you design information to come in in a way that the brain can cope with it being on different channels, then you're going to take in more of that information. So, for example, your petrol gauge is... Um, a state so it's rate or state information so that's a state you you have a picture which tells you how full your tank is now if that piece of information came in and told you how many liters are in the tank your brain then has to do a calculation well, i've got 35 liters left how much does my tank hold it holds 100 liters that means there's 75 missing or oh, i'm about a quarter of a tank full so do you see what I mean? By displaying information in a certain way, that means that you can have that instantly instead of having to do a calculation that's cutting down on your cognitive workload. And of course, they have had a long time to get that right. But the design of a dashboard, you know, the speedometer is usually the big one, isn't it? And then yes. the other ones at like the yeah. rev counter are smaller because they're less important. And those yes. those visual clues are actually important to us. Yes. Yeah. So designing a dashboard of incoming information would be designed on exactly the same principles. Um, I taught flight deck design. I don't know anything about flying an aircraft or very little, um, but I do understand how people in, in, in take information on board. And you'll find that those principles apply to a dashboard that you'll have on your laptop that tells you about information coming in your car, anything. It's the same principles. It's about how much information do you need? What do you need to know most importantly? Where does that need to be so you can see it? Etc. Etc. And then going back to where we were earlier on in the conversation, of course, unless you test these things with real people in real environments or as close to real environments as you can get, you don't know which of those dashboards they actually value and can act on. Yeah, user-centered design. It's the absolute key to everything with things like that because you can design something and then you can give it to a human to test and they will break it in a way that you did not know was possible. Um, is my experience. Um, if you want to break something on the laptop, you know, on a piece of software, then give it to me because I'm really not very good at that and I will find a way around of how to mess things up. Um, so, yeah, you do have to test it on a wide range of people, not just think, you know, the team that built it know exactly what information they're trying to portray. You need to give it to somebody who doesn't have any knowledge. Yeah, because they will have their own little shortcuts and ways around to deal with any any deficiencies in the software that they're using. Uh, so just looking then at how we deploy some of this knowledge and, you know, say to to listeners, do, do look at the report because there's some really interesting things in, in the report actually about, you know, how to integrate this with things like the MITRE ATT&CK framework and other aspects of the psychology along alongside this. But just something that comes out to my mind to wrap us up, do we focus this information and this insight that we have here on 
the security team specifically or potentially senior leaders in the board? Or is this something that needs to be rolled out across the entire organisation? And when we think back to those crisis scenarios and we talked about ransomware and its impact, you know, where do we need to focus our attention? You know, not necessarily practical to train everybody to the same level, but there may be some people who need to receive the bulk of the training and the bulk of the resource. Yeah, and I think that's that's very important, the point that you bring up there, because it is about the the whole workforce but you also have the thing of engagement because if for example for my job is not to do cyber security within immersive labs my job is to advise on the behavioral science side of it so actually how much training do i need in something that i'm never going to use because i don't need it it's too expensive it's going to take my resource away from the job i'm supposed to be doing and to be perfectly honest i'm probably not going to engage with it because i don't understand it so it's about being very adaptive with who is receiving what training to make it right for them. If you make it right for them and you make it relevant to their role, they will become more interested and engage with it. It's about making sure that your exec team understand their specific role within a cyber crisis. So for example, ransomware, what is the exec team focus? It's on the business impact, it's on reputational impact, it's on the finances, whereas the um, cybersecurity team is their focus is somewhere different it's about stopping the threat so each team that is involved in the crisis will have a different perspective on that particular thing and it's making sure that you're training them in their perspective and their role and also having understanding of how their role impacts on other people up and down the chain and making sure that when we look at that people process and technology element we're not just paying lip service to the people side yeah because it's difficult to see, it's difficult to understand, it's certainly difficult to measure, um, it, it's easier not to. Don't measure things just because you can measure them has always been my sort of caveat is that you measure what you need to measure. Um, and I think that with psychology and behavioural science, because it's not always that clear, it's not always obvious, it's difficult to measure, it's sometimes it's easier to just focus on the things that we can measure, can understand and can control. Rebecca McCowan on the importance of tailoring security awareness and training to individuals' specific roles and making sure that both executive teams and security teams are trained in how they need to respond in a crisis. In our next programme, we'll look at the growing importance of red teams in preparing for that cyber response and whether cyber incidents are likely to escalate into a cyber war. That episode will be live in two weeks' time and I hope you can join us then. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thank you for listening.